Every variant is going to be responsible for selling you an object that not only can be deployed in your physical life, but can be deployed in every virtual world as well. Hey there, and welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the number one show for all things e-commerce, where we get to hear from the best founders, CEOs, and digital leaders today. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO of Mission.org. And today we have a real treat because I caught up with returning guest, Taylor Holiday, the CEO of Common Thread Collective. Last time, Taylor dazzled us with his literal formulas for e-commerce success. And today we went deep into the future and where we think it's heading. I wanted to know how brands should be thinking about hot topics like Web3, NFTs, and the metaverse. And Taylor did not disappoint with his thoughts and opinions. Also, if you have questions that you would love to ask Taylor as you're listening to this episode, go on over to Twitter where we have an AMA thread with Taylor and he is there ready to answer any and all questions. All right, on to the interview. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Taylor, welcome back to the show, round two. I am so excited to have you back. How's it going? It is. It's funny. We were just talking about that question off camera, right? Like, uh, how is it going? I don't know. What's the time frame? What do you mean? I've got three kids. It's chaos today. I got to get to Little League practice. First game on Saturday. There's a thousand ways to answer it. But generally speaking, I'm doing really well. So you were on, I think, about a year ago. And so for anyone, first of all, if you didn't listen to that episode, it was great. It was probably one of like our most favorite, fan favorite, my favorite episodes, so practical. But since then, what has happened over the past year? I mean, and give a high level overview of like Common Thread Collective, where it's at today, and maybe what's been changing. Yeah, man, it feels like, what's that quote? Sometimes decades happen in weeks and sometimes weeks feel Uh like decades, whatever it is. Like we're certainly in that period now as a a globe, right? As a global community. But um, Common Thread Collective, we're an e-commerce growth agency that helps consumer product e-commerce businesses grow profitably. And so- We are about 150 people. Last time we spoke, we were probably 80 or 90. I don't remember the exact number, but we've experienced a ton of growth. Uh, I would say the last two years in e-commerce have been tumultuous Uh, coming out of 2020, which was the COVID year where there was actually immense a tidal wave of support for the e-commerce industry. And then into 2021, where there's actually been a lot of resistance in the form of the iOS privacy updates that everyone's experienced, supply chain problems. And so I would say from highs to lows, it's been an incredibly volatile couple of years. But in our business, there's actually a relationship between the volatility of our industry and people's desire to work with experts. So there tends to be the more uncertain things are, the more people rely on experts and service providers like us. So um, in that way, volatility tends to serve our business outcomes in in an interesting way. Okay, so how many companies are you working with today and any names that I may know of? 
Yeah, we, I mean, we have a, an amazing amount of partners, probably across all our different service offerings, um, north of 200 different brands at any given time. We work with businesses as big as Ann Taylor and Loft down to, you know, startups spending their first dollars on the platform. But we have an incredible set of partners from Igloo Coolers to APL Shoes, Born Primitive, like so, just so many different brands that we have a chance to work with and, and work alongside to help them, you know, bring their, their dreams and businesses to life. Cool. Okay. So in the last episode, it was super practical, talking numbers. I mean, we went through formulas. I remember I was yeah. like doing the math, like trying to keep up. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, it was great. This one, though, I really want to focus more on like the future. I mean, that's something where when I'm following you on Twitter and all the socials, you're definitely big now at the point of you're in a space where you have time to look into that, which is awesome. I mean, you mentioned you're hiring team members, you've got a COO. And so you can see that your mindset has shifted a bit and it's bigger picture thinking. And so I wanted to kind of center the conversation around that today, around like what you're seeing and what you're looking forward to. I want to start with that. Like, what are you most excited about in e-commerce over the coming, I'd say like 12 months? Yeah. So right now I mentioned 2021 is a period of resistance or struggle for a lot of e-commerce brands. I like to say that they e-commerce businesses are facing margin pressure at every point of their business, rising supply chain costs, right? We all know that story, well-documented from not just the backup, but the inflationary costs along supply chain, right? We know that rising CAC or customer acquisition costs from the iOS issues are hitting businesses hard. And there's also rising labor costs. The supply and demand of people with skills in our industry is massively out of whack. And so in every part of a, a business's P&L, they're facing pressure on the cost side of their business. So what this does is it creates a period of struggle. But in those spaces, what it forces businesses to do is innovate. And so margin innovation is this phrase that I'm sort of coining of what businesses are being forced to do right now to solve for those problems. And that actually is what develops the resiliency of the industry going forward, is we find ways to be more efficient in every part of the P&L through innovation, technological advancement. And uh, that's really exciting for me to figure out, okay, across every one of those portions of a business, how are they going to innovate margin into the future of their business? And so that's sort of the underlying theme that I'm watching play out right now. Okay, cool. Okay, so give me some examples of maybe the most innovative ways that companies are innovating on margins. Yeah, so so I think the most fascinating one to me is probably around digital goods and NFTs, right? Like, so this is this is a space where we're watching brands, and I think the best example of a consumer product business doing this really well is uh, the Hundreds. So the Hundreds is an apparel business that has created an NFT project called Atom Bomb Squad. So if you Google that, their logo as a business forever is a little guy, a little bomb with a face on it, and they created twenty thousand of these NFTs. And they sold them and they grant you access to private events, early access to merch drops. And each one was a design by an artist based on the legacy of the brand and the patterns that they use in their apparel. So a really authentic story. And why it's so interesting to me is like, set aside, I know everyone sort of rolls their eyes at, at NFTs, but what selling that object has created was on drop, they sold them for about 0.1 ETH each. So if you take 20,000 times 0.1 ETH, you very quickly can see how much money, so that's about 2,000 ETH, right? At the current ETH price today of $3,000. Yeah, $3,000, right? You can see that's about 6 million bucks, right? Like very quickly, that's pure marginal revenue. And then the magic of the object is every secondary sale of the NFT, they make a transaction fee on. They get to, that's part of the beauty of smart contracts and what NFTs enables is residual revenue on secondary transactions. And so now in apparel business, has a pure margin revenue stream that every day 
Somebody's buying a secondary purchase of a digital object that has no supply chain constraints, no cost of goods sold, pure margin that's now flowing into their P&L every month that enables them to be more aggressive in customer acquisition, to spend more on product R&D, to do all the things that a lot of businesses are unable to do because of that marginal revenue stream. And so that, that model is really fascinating and empowering for an apparel business that from a cash flow standpoint, if you run an apparel business, you know how hard it is to manage cash and inventory in an apparel business and creating residual revenue like that is just lifeblood to a business. Oh, I like that. Okay, I wanna dig deeper on that one. I'm thinking about, for the apparel business, I wanna like know the exact example. Cause I'm thinking as a consumer, I go and buy this NFT, I have this awesome design, super cool. And then like, I actually yep. want it on a shirt. Then what? I mean, exactly. Cause my thought is like, I want the materials. I want, if I'm buying from, you know, Lululemon or something like, I want their materials. I don't wanna have to go to a custom ink and like, put a cool design on a, I don't know, like Fruit of the Loom shirt. Sure. So what does it look like behind the scenes? Yeah, so there's so many different components here. There are instances in which you now control the IP of the NFT and you can do whatever you want with it. You could actually become a seller of that asset. I don't believe that in the Atom Bomb case, they actually assign IP rights. But in the case of the most popular NFT project around Board Ape Yacht Club, if you own the NFT, you own the IP rights for that asset. And you could actually now become a seller of shirts with your character on them. You control that IP. You can do whatever you want with it. You could put it on lunchboxes, mugs, anything you want. So for the holder of that, you now have an asset that's IP that you can do with whatever you want. You could build a TV show out of the character. All these are things that are happening around these assets. For the brand, going back to the apparel side of things, they now can do lots of cool things with that. Like, let's say you're launching a new collection of shoes. You can give those people early access to that merch drop. You can have private events that your NFT access and access pass to. You can put them into a private community group on Discord or Slack or anywhere else and grant access and conversation and get product feedback to whatever you want. You could give them a capacity. There's a really cool, um, another mechanism of this world, and I don't want to get too lost in the NFT space, but there's... Uh, there's this project called, I believe it's Mr. Wag Me. So Wag Me is a phrase. We are going to make it. It's an acronym in the NFT space. That's just sort of like a meme cultural thing that everybody uses. I like it. Yeah. There's this character called Mr. Wag Me that's basically a store that you can bring your NFT to and print it onto objects. And so it's a way to take your object and put it onto shoes or onto backpacks. Or, so now you're actually translating your individual asset into physical goods in cool ways. So there's all these things that are happening around these assets that, again, for the brand, it's just a new business model, a new way to think about distributing your asset, your brand into a form factor that isn't constrained by all the models of the old world, so to speak. That I think for a lot of people, they're going to they're gonna create in the same way that if you think about the brands that have grown really fast, the Pelotons or the Whoops, what enables their growth is that they have subscription software revenue on top of the hardware. So when you think about lifetime customer values, which enables customer acquisition, is that if you have recurring software revenue for my Whoop band that I buy, every month I get charged $50 or whatever it is, my LTV just keeps going up and up and up and up and up which enables them to be more aggressive on customer acquisition and enables their continued growth despite an offset, maybe some rising CAC. So this idea of digital revenue, whether it's NFTs, digital objects, or software, is a critical part of a lot of brands' futures um, to help offset a lot of what's happening. Yeah, I mean, it always reminds me of the Mark Andreessen quote, like software is eating the world, and now it's finally made it into the commerce phase and CPG. And That's right. Because now that I hear the design piece, I'm like, oh, that one makes sense. And it makes sense for artwork and music. But what about 
other industries? Like what are maybe some opportunities that you're talking with, you know, your clients about that maybe are a little, you know, contrarian or too futuristic where people are like, I don't know if that's going to work. Like, what are you kind of playing around with? So, so one of the big thing, another mechanism I love is one of the biggest challenges that e-commerce brands face is cash flow management. So if you think about some of the web two, so web two is just a, a phrase that denotes the period of the internet that we're currently living in. Think of it as like from the social media era through the mobile era as representing sort of web two. And the tools that got developed in that era to help with cash flow management, one of the big ones was Kickstarter. So Kickstarter was this way in which someone could come up with a product idea, they could present the product idea, and they could sell people access to the release of the product before it was ever made. And why that was so powerful is because it inverted your cash flow, right? You got the money as a business owner before you actually had to pay to produce the product, which is generally the biggest problem in e-commerce is you actually have to produce the object with money before you sell it. And so you have to outlay a bunch of cash to a manufacturer before you actually sell it. It's really hard. It means you have to usually raise money or you have to come up with the money out of your pocket somehow. But what Kickstarter did is allowed a bunch of people to invert that process. Well, NFTs, in theory, enable the same thing. There's a company called Artifact. Artifact uh, was acquired by Nike recently, okay? And they did a drop with an artist called Fawocious, okay? And what they did was they launched a shoe, an artist-designed shoe. And they had three tiers of them. Just for this, I don't remember the exact tiers, but think of it as like platinum, gold, silver. And they were different prices. And the idea was you bought an NFT of the shoe. So day one, you buy the NFT. One was $2,500, one was $1,500, one was $1,000, the NFT. And then 30 days later, if you were still holding the NFT, you had a choice. You could either redeem the NFT for the physical shoe, or you could continue to hold the NFT if you wanted. So think about this. If I'm the company selling the shoe, I sell you the NFT, which grants you access to the shoe. Okay, so just like Kickstarter, I get the cash today. And then I also make secondary transactions. But the difference for the holder versus Kickstarter, when I pay you on Kickstarter, I don't have an asset. I have nothing of value. I have a promise that someday you're going to send me a product. But as an NFT, the purchaser now can trade that on the secondary market. So they can sell it if they want. And if they're like, ah, I don't know if I actually want this. And maybe the asset has appreciated on the secondary market. I could actually make a profit off of it. Or I can hold it and actually redeem it for the shoe when I want to do that. So this idea of selling pre-orders to products in the form of NFTs, again, is a better way, I would argue, than Kickstarter to invert your cash conversion cycle because the holder has an asset, not just a promise, right? That they can actually transact with on the secondary market and I make residuals on that. And this is, this. think about places where the actual production cycle is like years long. So in wine or aged whiskey, where the actual process of making a 10-year vintage wine or a 10-year aged whiskey. Think about brands now being able to bot sell the actual access to that aging process 10 years before they actually deliver it to market. And it trades on the secondary all the way up to the point of deployment. Wow. This process of inverting the cash conversion cycle is another powerful tool that people are using this for. Wow. Okay. That's, I mean, now I have so many like thought bubbles thinking about how this change the secondary market. I mean, they're already kind of like putting collateral behind artwork and they already have platforms doing that already, but it's not in this model that I know of. I mean, are there other models right now that kind of work like this or is this very, I mean, it sounds pretty new. So part of the secondary market thing, so the cash conversion cycle is definitely new. And it's part of why Nike acquired Artifact very early on, uh, which was a really prescient move by them. 
The other thing, though, is that part of why Nike cares about this so much is that in particular in sneakers and apparel, secondary apparel and sneaker sales is a multi, multi-billion dollar market that those brands right now make zero money off of those secondary sales. If I'm Nike and I sell you sneakers and you as a sneakerhead take them and sell them on StockX, right now Nike makes no money on that. But if it's an NFT connected to a physical shoe, now when it's sold on secondary, that adds an additional stream of revenue from a market that they were not capturing any of the value of, then now they're going to. And so now Nike's gonna start associating NFTs with the physical shoes all the time. And so that connection between physical and digital objects is gonna become more and more and more common. And like one of the really cool things, like if you go to Artifact, which is rtfkt.com, what you'll see is that every time they have some objects that are purely digital and what they'll show you is every metaverse environment that this NFT can be displayed in. So part of this is now objects, if you think about an inherent attribute, like if you go to a PDP of a product page, right? It shows you what it's made out of, right? The next layer of this is every brand is going to be responsible for selling you an object that not only can be deployed in your physical life, but can be deployed in every virtual world as well. So imagine when you buy a couch, you're not just buying a couch for your home, you're buying a couch for every metaverse environment that's part of your digital identity as well. And so that's going to become more and more of an obligation of businesses to be able to deliver into both our physical worlds and our digital realities. Okay, so is there an opportunity when thinking about Nike, it's like a clear case because, you know, you own that shoe, you want to prove it's a real Nike. It's same thing with like purses. I mean, not that I own any of those, but like yep. people want to prove like this is what it is. What about for items that like don't have that kind of brand authority or it's like, but it still has value on the secondary market. I mean, I'm thinking about all these secondhand shops here in Austin. And it's like, they have very high, you know, high price goods there that may be sold for a lot of money. However, it's not like someone's like, I really want to verify this is whatever brand, like, I don't know, Levi Strauss. Yeah, I'll give you another example. So my friend runs a company called Fearn, F-Y-R-N, okay? He makes really high-end American-made handmade chairs. Okay, like beautifully handcrafted chairs. Part of the value proposition is they're built to last a lifetime. Like that's the point, right? So the idea would be that if you bought them for your home, part of the value proposition is that they should hold their value and that you should be able to sell them on on a secondary market. So they want to create an environment for that. Well, not only does the NFT in theory give them an ability to connect them, but imagine 30 years from now that you could actually check the NFT, every transaction of that chair's history is on the blockchain, and you can see every person that's ever owned this chair and where it's been. Every object now has a verifiable documented story associated with it. And so the idea that it's lasted and this chair used to be in Austin at this rad restaurant, and that it actually, it accretes value based on the narrative of its use in history. And that's actually verifiable on the blockchain. Like, that's really cool to think about. That's amazing. Right? And so so this, this sort of idea, like one of the things that people talk about with blockchain is that it's like a better truth, right? It provides us a historical accounting for where things have been and who's owned them and what they were paid for. And now like the storytelling that we could do about that, like as a business with our objects, like it adds a richness and a history to a brand in a really cool way. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I also think now's the time when people are kind of longing for, you know, wanting to understand where they come from and their families and where their items are from. And I mean, we had on a 
really cool company in the very beginning of the show called Sea Bags, and they were taking ship sails and turning it into bags. And it was a story behind that. I mean, they look like amazing bags, but it was the story that built up that whole company of like, this was on this ship that sailed here. And that's right. Now we can actually prove that and show it and add the details that we want to lock in, which is really awesome. And the difference is the story ends there for that brand. We acknowledge that that there's this value created by the history of the use of the product and they're selling that to you, but right now that's it. But the truth is that object went somewhere and was used by that somebody somehow, and then they may pass it on, but that what happens after the transaction right now is lost. And so instead, every time that NFT moves, there's a documented, registered, verifiable movement and associated story. And so imagine every time the sale happened, that you actually ask the owner to write in like some of their favorite memories associated with the product yeah. that now gets yep. passed with it forever, right? And so it's like, here are fi- family's five best memories with this chair. Like, hey, we had a birthday party and here's a picture that I actually could add into the Aww. program. Smart. Like there's just so many ways that you could enrich the narrative of an object in such cool, cool fashion. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't talk about publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. I feel like they need this in car sales. I'm trying to sell my old 2015 car right now. And this person is asking me all these questions like, are you the first owner? And like all these questions where I'm like, ah, can't you just like verify this somewhere? Yes, I'm the first owner. But like, why can't you just look? That's right. But it could go a lot of places. That's why the blockchain is going to disrupt every industry just like those. Like if you think about our mortgage, our ID, our social security number, all these things are best served in a transparent registry that we can all verify for. But The other thing too is like when you start to think about the merging of like digital and physical and like what AR represents. So imagine this idea that you walk through a house that you're selling and alongside the like verified registered history of it is like the ability to now pull up a video of like something that happened in the backyard. So now I can imagine like the birthday party that occurred here and I could see the car, the kids in the back from a sports game singing a song like in a way that was like overlaid onto the object, right? And associated and stored with it forever all in a smart contract on the blockchain. Now, this isn't an object. It's it's a store. And this is this is my favorite definition of, of NFTs that I've come up with. Is it's a store of cultural value, right? Like is what it does is it takes everything, all the energy and experience associated with that object and allows you to store it in there, right? In the way that like this photo right here, right? Of my family. Like why that's valuable to me is because that's dream day at CTC with my kids sitting on my lap, listening to people inside of a cup. Like they're all the feelings associated with that photo matter to me. So the, the photo is like indicative of the experience, right? 
And in a lot of ways, like that's what an NFT should do in its best form is it should help to store and represent all of the experience associated with that object or that picture in some way for you. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I was thinking, um, you know, Neil Gaiman, the author. Yeah. I was just on Tim Ferriss this week. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just listening to that. Okay. The part in the episode where he was saying how his two-year-old son took his fountain head pen and shoved it in the cast iron stove and it's stuck there forever. And he signed like two million signatures, like book, you know, book signings yeah. with. And I was like, oh, that'd be a good story, especially if you had it in the AR version where yeah. people could go and kind of see and um, I mean, especially for someone like that. Totally, totally. Like I, one of the things I'm fascinated by, like, and I keep using houses because they're just such a place of memory. The house I live in, uh, before we bought it, someone remodeled it. And when we first moved in, all of the Google Street View photos hadn't updated, okay? And so there's this view of our house that like, it looked so different. And when we talk to our neighbors, they're like, yeah, that used to be the ugly house on the street. And they would, they had this whole like history of this place. Yeah. That's really interesting, right? Like that, that's like the evolution of it is, is fascinating to me. And so there's, there's this element by which all of that history adds richness to it. So I don't know. It's, it's fun to think about. Okay. So it sounds like you're very bullish on NFTs. Yeah. We got, we went down a deep rabbit hole there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, I love that. I actually, these are the things that I always want to talk about and go deep on. So I'm glad you're here to do this with me. I want to shift over to, I mean, we can say metaverse. Yeah. I know you're bullish now on meta. So I want to kind of hear your thoughts on how brands should be playing in the metaverse or, you know, hanging out with Mark Zuckerberg on meta. What are you thinking? So Lex Friedman interviewed Mark Zuckerberg for about two hours. I don't know if you listen to Lex Friedman, yeah, but he's a, yeah. he's a very thoughtful podcaster. Mm-hmm. I listened to like 15 minutes of it. It was good so far. Yeah. And I think it'll give you the best sense of what's happening here. Okay. So one of my favorite examples is people think, oh, the metaverse, you're going to go be an avatar and run around. Like, but it's, it's like we're missing the, the possibilities here. So one of the big things that Facebook is working on is they have now have the capacity to automatically translate 100 different languages in real time, okay? So imagine now, right now, the only reason, Stephanie, that you and I can do a podcast is because we both speak English to each other, right? And that that narrows the scope of who we could have a communication with and who we could offer value to. In the metaverse, part of what this enables is you could be speaking Chinese right now and we could have a full-blown conversation that we're hearing and receiving each other in perfect understandable language back and forth in real time. Like, do you know what that enables in terms of the possibility of communication of us as a species? Like, it's incredible. Is that here now? Yeah, so, so fa- this is a thing that Facebook's doing. So like people, what people miss about the amount of time and energy and the technological sophistication is they think, like they narrow the view of the metaverse to this idea of like, I'm this like clunky avatar and I have this weird headset on, but they miss what the the digital layer on top of our physical lives enables in terms of human connection. And this is what I think Mark understands really, really well. And what Facebook actually is after is that their mission around connecting people is they understand the barriers to connecting people. Like there was even these fascinating conversations where they're so far ahead that they've understood, like one of the fascinating things they talked about was like, what uh, is the actual experience of being in person? Like what What is actually occurring that makes it feel a certain way? And so one of the things they noticed is that when you tried to build a digital avatar is that the really hard thing to plot was the relationship between your eyes, elbow, and hand. And that they couldn't make it feel normal to show you your elbows. Like they couldn't get that angle right and always felt off. And so if you ever used Oculus now, you'll notice it's just hands. And so they realized that when they removed elbows, it actually made the experience feel more human, more present. 
those little subtleties of understanding what makes like the idea of being in person. Because if you think of what all we are is just like sensory input beings that take a series of feelings, thoughts, visual inputs, audio inputs, uh, like olfactory inputs and process them. And so as we learn more and more about why, like we'll describe this feeling that you can't replicate what it feels like to be in person. And it's like, no, no, no. All that is is a series of inputs we're receiving. Which ones matter to us? And so starting to understand those and be able to bring them to bear such that we could go into those environments or like you and I are on a TD or 2D image right now. We have a very limited sense of those things with each other, but we're going to be able to do that better in the future. And it's going to be more like being together. We're going to feed off each other in better ways. Those are all elements of the metaverse that we have to consider. And thinking about your product in those spaces And how does it matter in those spaces is really important. Some of them, it will be really critically important. Apparel, you know, different sunglasses, whatever it might be. Some of it will be less important. Food might not matter as much. I don't know. Like, I don't know what it's going to be like. But beginning to think about not just like these like made up Roblox style worlds, which are a part of the metaverse, but this world in which the digital layer begins to deepen its connection to the physical layer is, I think, a really important thing to consider how your, your product fits within it. Mm-hmm. How should a company go about auditing if they should even be playing in this right now? Because I've definitely seen a lot of mm, experiences where I'm like, oh, it's like a virtual store and it's not good. And yeah. it's trying to be really real. And it's just grainy. And and these are like the biggest brands doing it. So I'm like, man. Yeah. Are you referencing the Walmart video that they released? There, there were some more. There were some other ones that I've been playing around in that I'm like, this is just not good. I mean, I'm glad people are trying. Yeah. It's great that the bigger brands exactly are trying. Right. But yeah, like, what do you think? Just like wait for them to try it out and see how it goes or? I think that like the thing that people miss about criticizing those things is what I just described about why Facebook is so far ahead of everybody is because they learned the thing about the elbows. Okay. Yep. Because they tried. And so they know something you don't know. That creates a massive advantage for whatever it actually does become, is that in trying the thing, you learn what works and what doesn't. And so you refine and you refine and you refine. And so, of course, we have this like our brain, like the way it works is like we just try and take what we know and we translate it into the next thing. And we like go like, oh, we'll make virtual malls and we'll walk around and they'll be like physical malls. But but if like if physics don't apply, what would you actually do? You probably wouldn't need shelves if everything could float. Right. Like that's an example. Like you don't actually need shelving. So like that's a that's an example where the oh, OK, I don't need to build shelves if something can float. So like in the process of working through the translation, you learn and you begin to get feedback from people about what did they love? What did they hate? What was amazing and what felt clunky? What was uh, like awe-inspiring, what gave you motion sickness, right? Like that's a big thing with VR headsets, like, right? And so I would just encourage brands, at this moment, it's a playground, it's not a profit center. And these are these are different things, okay? There is your core business. Orchid, our COO, always likes to ask me this question because I'm a futurist. Is this interesting or important, okay? Important means it's a financial implication of your business in the next 12 months. And it interesting means it's not a financial implication of your business in the next 12 months, but we should learn about it and we should approach it with a learner's mindset. And so I think businesses need to draw a distinction for themselves about where they're at and where the metaverse or Web3 or NFTs play as it relates to being interesting versus important. And for most brands at this moment, it's interesting, not important, and they should treat it as such. 
Yeah, it's also fun to just study. I really was pretty bearish on Meta. I mean, I was like, whoa, big brother, step away. I mean, people listening definitely know, like I haven't been yep. uh, very excited about it. But after listening to that piece of that interview and thinking more about it, I'm like, okay, maybe just being interested and curious into what they're doing is a way to actually learn. And maybe it's not being interested in what they're doing, or maybe it is, I don't know. Same thing with the big brands. Like, what can you learn? Because a lot of them are like openly sharing That's right. You know what they learned. And you can just go into the environment and be like, oh yeah, I didn't like that. Like you said, like this felt weird. Let me just think about why for a second. Like, I think that's such the right way to approach it is we can both have concerns about Facebook being the uh, driver of the metaverse and what is required of them from a privacy standpoint, whether we actually want them to be the builder of it and learn from the $10 billion they're going to spend in research this year. Yep. Those things can be simultaneously true, right? In the same way, I can read about Google's work um, in artificial intelligence and also be concerned about Google running artificial intelligence, right? Because there's something to be said for they are enacting a day-to-day effort to attempt to understand this world that I'm curious to gain learnings from and also to examine their view of it, you know? Yeah. So much of that is missed though. I mean, I think about all the companies, I mean, I worked at Google and I know all the research they did and I feel like no one actually valued that. And you can still have your concerns, but I'm like, there's a lot of good stuff and there's so much data to look at here. Same thing with Uber. They had this really good chief economist and he was like originally recruited by Jeff Bezos and he wanted to write papers. And Jeff was like, no, you can't write, use any of our data. Of course, like you cannot write any papers. And Uber said he could. And people look at Uber and they're like, oh, I don't want to learn from them, bad culture, whatever. And this guy has all these like brilliant research pieces around tipping and how to get people to tip and incentives and like so much stuff that a lot of companies could use when thinking about pricing models and how to incentivize people, but they wouldn't go to a company like Uber to maybe learn from it, which I feel like is a big missed opportunity. I just think that anytime when we paint with that broad a brush, we do a disservice to ourselves more than anything. Is that the reality is like Uber may have had systemic issues. Like we could we could say that and also to say that all the individuals in there weren't bad or acting in bad faith, right? Those things can be simultaneously true. And then to say that therefore everything that comes out of there isn't bad, right? Like now, should we hold it? Should we examine it? Should we like be skeptical potentially? Yeah, like like, that's okay too. But to discard it, I think would just be a disservice to yourself. Like there, there just is probably value in somebody having spent a ton of time and energy trying to understand how to create VR worlds that feel real. <laughs> like that's just useful. Yeah, I agree. All right. We've talked about NFTs. Yeah. We've talked about metaverse and meta. Time to talk about Web 3.0 because that's an area I've tried to bring this up a couple of times, but no one has given me a clear picture on how to think about it because my thought is like, okay, you go into Web 3.0 as a brand, you're used to advertising in one way, finding consumers in one way, kind of can't really do that anymore there. I mean, you kind of lose touch in many ways. You have to start from scratch. So should brands even be thinking about this right now, or is it like too soon? So I think the, the my favorite definition of the transition from web one to web two to web three is rewrite own, okay? So web one was just, we could read what was on the internet, right? Like we weren't an active participant in the creation, but we could consume, people could put things onto a digital broadcast and we could consume them. Web two was we became the creators. This is social networks. We are the creators of the content. This is YouTube. This is everything else, right? Web three is we move from being readers and writers to we now own the thing, okay? And this is a big transition from actually moving out of seeing your people as customers, okay? This is a big difference. Web three, your customers own the thing, 
Okay. They are the actual controllers and the, they reap value commiserate with the creation, right? So if you think about a social network, the idea of a, what a Web3 social network would be is that it's decentralized. The users reap the value of their creation. They don't have this exchange. In Web2, there's an exchange that says, in exchange for distribution, you will take my content and distribute it to all of my followers. I will give you ownership of what I create and I will not be able to monetize it, you get to monetize it. You get to sell ads, and maybe I give you a small royalty share in the case of YouTube or other channels. But for the most part, the disproportionate value capture happens from the entity. The goal of Web3 is to sort of invert that, to make it such that it's decentralized ownership. And there's different. this happens through tokenomics, meaning that there are entities like, um, I think a good example of this is OpenSea versus Looks Rare. Okay, I'm going to Stay with me. So OpenSea is the largest NFT marketplace, right? Meaning, think of it as like the eBay for NFTs. It's a people buy and sell and transact. And OpenSea is the, the middleman that enables that transaction. They're the marketplace. And right now, OpenSea is centralized. They make all the money. When there's a transaction, that money goes into the coffers of OpenSea, right? Well, a competitor was created called LooksRare. So LooksRare.org, if you go to it, it'll look like a marketplace like OpenSea. But what they did was they created a token, which is just a cryptocurrency. So it's a, uh, a digital currency associated with the business. And they distributed it to all the holders that accretes value based on the transactions that happen on the platform. So now I, as a holder of looks token, dollar sign L-O-O-K-S, now reap a benefit based on the value of that token. So the idea is that while it's not directly associated with the, it's not like a direct corollary to stock or the income value, the transaction volume does produce additional value for looks, the token. So now all of a sudden users have an incentive to transact there financially in a way that benefits them. And similarly, if we go back to our atom bomb squad example, if atom bombs increase in value, all the holders benefit from that financially. And so now you have in basically taking the affiliate model of web two, where if you go out and you make me a sale, I give you a percentage of it. All of these people are hyper incentivized financially to promote your business or brand because they benefit financially from it. And so that's that's one of the sort of visions of this, this new thing. Well, whether it comes to fruition or not in totality is still yet to be seen. But I think that's one of the big distinctions is read, write, own is the big piece is that the creator becomes the owner in, the, in this world. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then how do you think that's going to impact like companies trying to start, you know, and thinking about finding new customers. I mean, thinking about influencers and all of that. I mean, it seems like it's gonna be a whole different world. I think that the directional creation of brands. So right now, what we're trying to think about is Web2 brands trying to become Web3 brands. But I think the bigger threat to all of us is Web3 brands selling physical objects. So I'll give you an example like LinkStow. Okay, so LinkStow is a, so a DAO is a decentralized autonomous uh, organization. It's just think of it as like a company that's run by code, not an operating agreement. Okay, so the the bylaws are written in code in the way that it behaves, and everybody's a uh, uh, votes their proxy. If there's a thousand NFT holders, they all get a vote, and the code determines how people whether a law or uh, a, an obligation passes or not. Right, so that's the idea. Well, LinksDAO, okay, is an organization that was started to buy a golf course. Uh, and they was a thousand, I think there's a thousand holders of the LinkStow NFTs, and they're going to use that money to buy a golf course that all the holders will be a member of. Well, two weeks ago, they just voted to launch a merch store. 
And now Link Style sells apparel. They sell golf club head covers. They sell tees. They sell all sorts of things. And all the money that goes into the treasury is controlled and voted on by the holders of the NFT. There's no shareholders of the entity. There's no disproportionate benefit. The customers can be the holders of the NFTs. You've got a built-in bunch of people that are incentivized to go buy all those things, right? Because they actually reap a benefit of it and to share it. And all that money then is controlled by the DAO. It's controlled by the holders. That's a very new business model, That's cool. right? For products. And so I think we're going to see a lot of that become how brands get built is they're actually going to get built by these consortiums of people that are already built in customer bases in ways that is going to be really fascinating to see what happens. Interesting. I'm trying to think about the unintended consequences or like the incentives around, you know, right now, like founders take that's right. That's right. Disproportionate risk. And so if you all of a sudden are being like, so this is the question. Yeah. Like, how will you incentivize people to keep building companies if, you know, I don't know. So that's exactly the question is that does distributed reward distribute risk such that people have the incentive to keep going? So, I mean, you know, in a microcosm, we're going to find this out at CTC. We're selling CTC. We're selling the company to our employees. We're running a social experiment in a very similar way, which is like, and now what I'll tell you is that there's employee-owned companies all over the world. Yeah. It's not a new thing. There are, there's a whole yeah. culture of ESOP companies that are 100% employee-owned that actually outperform non-employee-owned companies. But did they start employee-owned? I feel like a lot of them shifted to employee-owned. I don't, I don't know many that started out that way. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the exact data on how many began that way versus shifted. And it's a great question of whether that like initial driving force of the uniquely incentivized yeah. individual is important. Because that's, I'll tell you, that's a narrative. That's a capitalistic narrative that I think you could argue is a mechanism and argument for consolidating power into the hands of a few people is that it, it's, I need this motivation because I'm taking on disproportionate risk. And so that's why I must reap disproportionate reward. Then the jury's out. I think, I think this is a big thing that Web3 is going to put to the test is can you actually distribute that risk? And will the effort that's required to actually solve these things, will the network effect created by a bunch of people offset that? effort required. And I think it's going to be a big test at Web3. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So the last question I have for you is what's the most um, contrarian opinion you have around e-commerce right now? Like, what do you say on Twitter that people are like, go away, Taylor. We don't want to hear from you. <laughs> I mean, a lot of things, but uh, um, <laughs> I think one of the, everybody's favorite things to talk about right now is diversification of your media mix. I just think it's like a swan song for death. Like it's a siren call of to die. People think that um, Facebook was somehow uniquely affected by iOS updates, but they weren't. It was every app is subject to the same policies. And so there's this excitement about TikTok or Snapchat or YouTube as a substitute or answer for the problems that Facebook's facing. And it's not. The diversification will kill most brands. The attempt to move dollars out of that channel into another one in a lower performing area will really hurt them. And it's going to pendulum swing back and forth. I really believe that there's going to be a boomerang back to a realization of just how good we've had it and just how effective is Facebook is relative to everything else. So I just did this big thread the other day about like 10 reasons why public sentiment for Meta is going to change. And I, I, part of it is just trying to be provocative and doing a thought exercise for myself. But that, that's a big one, I think. And then I think one of the ones that I've, I say I've shifted on is that um, in D2C, we have no idea what brand awareness actually means or at the scale at which it actually is required. And this is a thing I've learned when I've started working with like a big retail brand like Ann Taylor Loft, like having a store in every mall in America 
for a long time is what that actually does to people's awareness of who you are relative to a lot of like, I see like, you know, $30 million E2C brands talk about brand awareness and their brand awareness is basically zero. Like basically nobody knows who they are in the context of things relative to some of these other brands. Um, and there is so far to go and retail is such a powerful tool for generating brand awareness still that I think like we, we've, and I don't know if this is super contrarian. I think the world is actually starting to come around to this position. So that's the second one that retail is a critical part of building an actual brand. And then the third thing is that aggregators are a horrible business model. That's, that's what I'd say like, that's a, that's a hot one right now that I, I've just lived that life to know the limitations of it. Yeah. I was say, you know best with that. So I'm not going to challenge you on that one. I feel like you already know all the details. Which one, which one do you disagree with? Which one you, you sound like you're anti-Facebook. Um, I'm not sure about Facebook yet. Okay. Yeah, I'm unclear. The jury's still out for me on whether I trust or not. I am very for all the technologies coming out. I'm very into crypto and you know blockchain. Yeah. I think Web3 seems cool. I'm just trying to understand like how companies could play in it just because I talk about that all day. Yeah. So I'm just not sure about Facebook being the main um, holder of the keys to that world. Is that a moral concern or a, a business concern? Not really a business concern, more of like moral, like, you know, all the details they have on people and just where these bigger companies are getting the majority of their revenue from. And so the incentives there and yeah, privacy stuff and seeing censoring things. And some of those things just kind of make me wonder of like, OK, who's going to be the decider, uh, which is why I like, you know, oftentimes decentralized approaches to things. So I'm like, well, maybe there shouldn't just be one company kind of deciding, you know, what gets said and what doesn't or whatever that may be. So I'm not sure about meta. I like the metaverse, but I'm not sure about meta. One of the interesting things, okay, I, 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 I totally, totally hear that. One of, the, one of the interesting things I think about privacy, I don't like, I'm trying to figure out what we all want with this because it's funny because blockchain is sort of the absolute inverse of Privacy. It's basically every financial transaction that you've ever made publicly available to everybody. <laughs> um, but not tied to you, though. Like, yes, you can see it on the blockchain, but I can't be like, that's Taylor's unless you made it clear. Right. But there's all sorts of ways in which people sleuth that, right? Like, that's like outing your, like, there's, you want to talk about, you can't out my financial transactions in my bank, Yeah. but you can find my wallet online. Like it's possible, right? And then every everything I've ever bought or transacted and you can now follow forever. You mean like tied to your name though? Yeah, because I haven't gone to great lengths to hide it. Got it, yes, right? okay, okay. Cause I'm like, there will be, maybe that is a, the case right now, but I'm like, it, there will be a place where I feel like that will not be the case. I mean, cause I think about all the times that I'm using Venmo and I'm like, I always put private whether I care or not. Like I don't want people literally being like, right. hey, $30 to a cleaner or whatever. Yeah. Like, there will be a time when I feel like the technology will enable privacy better than it has been like up until now, because right now you don't have enough everyday users using it still. I mean, I feel like Coinbase was the first thing that came out and everyone's like, yeah, I can finally buy Bitcoin. But like when I bought it back in 2011, wow, that was like miserable trying to figure out what to do to even like buy it. Yeah. And I think that's the, the question all the time is like, is the point of cryptocurrency in the blockchain to enable transparency or privacy. Like, and there, I think, I don't think we're clear yet on what we actually think is like, what's the value proposition? Yeah. Because a lot of times I'll hear this thing of like, oh no, like it brings transparency to political use of capital, right? So like, if we could see that if a campaign had to reveal their, you know, wallet address and we could see how they actually use their funds or a charity had to disclose their use of capital, but that's sort of doxing yourself and saying, I'm going to give you transparency into my financial utilization. That's like on an individual human basis, we're probably like, that's not actually what I want. Yeah. But maybe from like a charity standpoint or 
politicians, I mean, you think about the man hours that go into trying to figure out like what so-and-so did with their finances in 2020 versus just being like, right. here you go. Don't waste those man hours doing that. Like, and ch- same thing with charities. Like, I do think that would pretty that would probably put a lot of people's minds at ease because I think there's so many ideas around like what's actually happening. But like, if you actually look into it, it's like, well, maybe that was happening 10 years ago with like, I don't know, Red Cross or whatever, but like, it's not a thing anymore, you know? Yeah, I, I think the thing we're gonna have to wrestle with um, is what it creates is an attack vector for every decision you make, you being obligated yeah. to the morality of every person you transact with. So like, imagine, imagine a charity, like one of the things right now is that like, uh, Let's say you run Black Lives Matter as a charity. Everywhere you go, what it's going to do is whoever's against you is going to look for improprieties in every layer of your transactional supply chain, right? Like, yeah. And the second somebody is doing something wrong, like we're going to reach this sort of like cancel culture moment of now you become sort of obligated to every transaction. Which Is that good or bad? I don't know. I don't actually know. There's a book called um, The Light of Other Days, okay? And the idea of this book is... We've developed this wormhole technology where we can have transparency to everybody's thoughts all the time. And you can suddenly we move to like the complete spectrum of transparency. And so what happens is we've sort of reached the other side of cancel culture where basically like we all realize we all suck. And so what then? Uh, What do you do in that moment where sort of this like masquerade of like moral superiority deteriorates from every angle? And I think like these kinds of things, as we as we get into these layers of like privacy, transparency, pseudonymity versus actual identity, like like because we're moving to a world where like there are characters whose entire persona is unknown. Is that good yeah. or bad? Like I don't know. Like so, I, I think that it's just going to be a fascinating thing for us to figure out as a society. Yeah, I mean that, that's why with a lot of these things, I'm like I have a strong opinions weekly held totally. like, for now. Here's what I'm thinking. But if I find new information, I'll change it. And I mean, same thing with retail. I'm very bullish on retail. I think that that's going to continue to be a great way to connect. And one of the guests, maybe a, a week or two ago, they were like, retail is cheaper for us to find new customers than it is online right now because online is so expensive. And yeah. uh, I just think there'll be just different, unique ways to connect with customers with retail. Well, I think a great example of exactly that is fair, right? Yeah. So this is a perfect example of what's like versioned in this space of like retail discovery, right? Which is if I'm a small business owner and I'm looking for product or I'm a product looking for retail, they created this marketplace that is sort of this like, like you wouldn't call that pure like wholesale, like with a sales team going out to a buyer. It's digital, it's direct in some way, but it's ultimately a wholesale transaction. So it's almost this like third way, right? That I think that's where... We get too like uh, rigid in our view of things. And I think what you're saying, this idea of strong opinions loosely held is that it, sort of like the principle of the third way, which is like, there's always going to be a version of the thing that we should hold the idea that could be better. And so if, if we continue to allow for that possibility, then as new things arise, we, it gives us space to consider them. And I think that's like, that's important. Yeah, I love that. All right, Taylor, is there anything that you feel like we missed on this interview? Because I feel oh, like we man. just covered a whole lot of everything, but like, is there anything that you really wanted to come on here and talk about? I, no, I mean, I, I, I love this conversation. There's so much, I think, on the supply chain side that I think is going to be really fascinating on 3D printing and how supply chain actually works. And I think like what's going to go away is the way that supply chain currently works right now, which is like I order a thing from thousands of miles away. It goes on a boat. It comes to me like that's going away. I think a great example of this is like David Freeberg has this company that's like basically printing beverage recipes, right? So if you think about the difference between ordering uh, a Coca-Cola and having it shipped across this giant supply chain into a liquor store, 
the basic component parts of every beverage are not actually that different. They're mostly water in most cases. And if you could build a machine that has all the ingredients, and then what we're selling as drink makers is actually a recipe. It's a software that you could then print basically the beverage. So at, at your house in 10 years, you'll be able to drink anything at any time. And it's just a software purchase. Like that version of when we think about margin innovation, again, think about the margin on that purchase versus all the dollars that get sucked out of supply chain. Like that to me is like a fascinating world that's going to happen. Yeah. The same thing on the labor side with AI. Like there's just so much that all these things are so exciting that like we're going to solve for the present problems in such cool ways. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, it's also just been interesting seeing on the supplies, like supply chain side of how already what's been happening in the past few years has completely changed many companies' models. And yes. people now thinking about like, well, why would I, you know, have something shipped from overseas when I could maybe get the order, 3D print it right away in, you know, New Jersey and then ship it to the person right next door or something. That's exactly right. Yeah, I feel like it innovated in a lot of ways really quickly that people weren't even thinking about two years ago. Like, if you think about like one of the things I like to think about is like there's sort of Moore's laws. It relates to the like technology innovation and the size of a micro uh, a computer chip, right? So it's like yep. you can get twice the computer powder, whatever the exact equation is. Every seven years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Google. You're 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 the technology support <laughs> there. Thank you. I appreciate it. So um, what that meant was that when we grew up, like computers were gigantic. Well, there's a similar principle around manufacturing capacity that like, um, I think what ends up happening is what was a giant machine will become a thing that we can print in our homes in ways. Now there's constraints relative to the volume of the raw materials that provides like a chemical physics limitation. But at the end of the day, like we will be able to make things so much like in our pockets and in the same way that we can compute things in our pockets. And that will transform the way that supply chain happens and will make software again, so much more a part of how we think about product composition and the way that that occurs. Yep, I love that. Well, Taylor, we'll definitely have to have you back for round three. You already yeah. know it's coming because I feel like we have so much more to talk about. But until next time, where can our lovely listeners and viewers find more about you and your futuristic thinking? <laughs> yeah, I'd say Twitter is the place that um, I spend most of my time thinking and pontificating publicly available for your criticism at Taylor Holiday. And then if you want to talk, if you're in e-commerce business, taylor at commonthreadco.com is my email. I'm happy to chat there as well. So I appreciate the time, Stephanie. listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.